we are continuing our conversations about near-death experiences. We have another pilot on today. Today, we are going to be speaking with Jim Woodford, and I'm going to pitch it to Randy to give us a quick intro to Jim, and we will get into his exciting story. Jim, it's great to have you. Uh, Jim has a fascinating story. He was a successful businessman, uh, pilot, as Sean mentioned, and then a rare disease killed him, and he had an experience with heaven. You're not going to wish. You're not going to want to miss this uh, episode, and uh, you'll want to hear it straight through because at the end you're going to hear something uh, very encouraging. So, Jim, it is great to hear you. Please uh, share your story. It is absolutely fascinating. Well, thank you, Randy and Sean, for having me and for um, having uh, and for the opportunity uh, to, I think, give people hope uh, because um, if you ever considered yourself a lost cause, I'm the walking billboard. <laughs> when it comes to God. So um, my my book that I wrote, Heaven, An Unexpected Journey, truly was that, an unexpected journey. So to give you a little background, and Randy, feel free to interrupt me because I there's so much to tell you in such a short time. I always feel a little panicky because I, I feel if I leave something out, it may be the one thing that would bring someone closer to God. So please bear with me. So um, I uh, this happened to me back in 2014, um, August 21st, or uh, April 21st, sorry, April 21st of 2014. And uh, look, you know, I, um, I was not a, a Christian, so to speak. I was raised Catholic. Uh, didn't mean a whole lot to me, except it was a good hockey team uh, at the church. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, I was born, I'm Canadian, I was born in uh, Newfoundland, Canada, which is uh, sort of in the north, northeast, and uh, where summer is on a Wednesday from two to four. <laughs> but I loved it, and it was my home. Uh, and uh, my dad died when I was very young, I was only two, and my mom was left a widow with two young boys, and she was only 23. So, um, uh, but I had a, you know, a wonderful upbringing. We live with my uh, paternal grandparents, and uh, they were a wonderful Irish Catholic family. And so nothing traumatic happened to me. I don't remember my father, of course, uh, but we were surrounded by love uh, in a uh, remote area of the Canadian hinterlands. And uh, it was I had a good life, you know. Uh, one of the things that I got used to as a young boy was watching uh, the seaplanes that would come in and land on the lakes to uh, to bring um, uh, supplies and that sort of thing. Um, and I became enamored with aviation. And so by the time I reached 18, uh, that was what I wanted to do with my life. And although we were quite poor, uh, my mom arranged somehow for me to borrow the funds to uh, put myself through, uh, to put me through uh, aviation school. And so at 18, I graduated. Uh, so I was back in 1967. Uh, if you can imagine a world without cell phones or satellites. And of course, growing up in the bush, uh, 
I was able to land a job with uh, with a bush flying company, and from there my career eventually blossomed into flying larger aircraft and working all over the world. And so, like anyone starting a new job, I uh, I uh, loved it. If if you're lucky enough in life uh, to have a profession that you love so much, you do it for free. And on top of that, they paid you ridiculously large amounts of money to do it. You're very fortunate. And that, uh, that indeed was me. And I, so I, I, I loved it. I loved the travel. Um, and eventually did a lot of work out of England and into Africa, South America on special freight airlines. So, uh, yeah, I had a, a good career. And, uh, but you know, I look back now in the clear light of hindsight, and I remember those uh, endless hours in, in a, on a night flight over, say, the South China Sea, where you, it's so black you can't even see uh, where the sky ends and the earth begins. And I'd look up at the stars, and you would think that I would have thought uh, more about God than I did. Um, and I suppose uh, I was never agnostic. And I think like most people, I hoped that someone was in charge of the chaos. Uh, but I never sought it out. And so I continued to live a life that became quite successful and uh, invested my money wisely at the beginning of the uh, tech boom in the 80s. And um, and I had a good life. <laughs> My nickname, by the way, was Diamond Jim. Whether it was an engine failure at 35,000 feet or a business deal that uh, that just blossomed, uh, not out of any kind of particular intelligence, just keeping my ear to the ground from the smart people I was around, and, and that made me uh, very comfortable in life, shall we say. So um, life was good. And uh, I... Uh, married, uh, I met on horseback, uh, my wife. And I mentioned horseback because horses play an important part in this story. And when I grew up as a child uh, in a remote area where we lived, my grandfather logged with horses. And so I grew up um, crawling under the bellies of horses and uh, watching my grandfather and learning from him. So I've always had a love. And as I'm sitting here talking to you, I'm looking at the window at my horses as we speak. So, and they, they play an important part in the story. So life was good. And, uh, but I suppose like a lot of people, not just of my generation, but going back since the beginning of, of mankind, uh, my main focus in life was the achievement of wealth because wealth gave you freedom. So I thought, and, uh, and I became good at it and uh, was rewarded accordingly. Uh, but little did I realize uh, how hollow that is. And what I mean by that is um, whether uh, it was my collection of British sports cars, uh, my large boat, uh, new airplane, uh, I, would, I would enjoy those. But then I remember laying awake at night and thinking, is this all there is? Is this all there is? And I would interpret that as meaning I needed a, 
more cars or a faster airplane or a bigger boat. And so the next day I would go and buy them. But what I was searching for was something far beyond uh, the wealth of this world. I just didn't know it. And I look back now in absolute amazement that I never uh, really realized it was the absence of God in my life that was creating this emptiness. And so, uh, you know, a charmed life, a beautiful, loving family, uh, and uh, wealth sufficient to take pretty care of pretty much anything I wanted or needed. Um, and on top of that, I was blessed with a uh, good health all my life, and uh, and never had so much more much more than a head cold. But uh, in 2009, 2010, I began to feel different. And uh, I, of course, put it to one side because with my nickname of Diamond Jim, I can overcome anything. So arrogance is a, diff is a difficult thing. <laughs> you're not, you don't really realize how arrogant you are until you're faced uh, with a, a true um, calamity in your life. Uh, I have learned the hard way, gentlemen and viewers, that you have to come to the end of yourself before you find the beginning of God. And that's what happened to me. So to get to the point, I became more and more ill and uh, then woke up one morning and was unable to stand or uh, and was quite ill. I remember the, that Sunday morning, my wife had gone to church and of course I never went. And uh, but when she came home and she's a nurse, uh, she immediately, uh, it was a Sunday, so I had to wait till Monday to see my doctor. And I went to see him and, uh, and he uh, examined me and said, well, I think you just have maybe a flu that's coming on. So just go home and rest. And so I did. And if nothing improved, in fact, it went downhill. And a couple of days later, I, I couldn't keep food down and, uh, the paralysis was becoming more pronounced. I was having difficulty walking. So I went in again, and now he was annoyed with me <laughs> and assured me I was fine. Uh, the blood work had not come back but, yet, but uh, just go home and rest. Well, two days later, I dragged myself in there again, and this time I collapsed in the parking lot. Now they pay attention. And my wife advocated very strongly that I'd be admitted to the hospital. And so this was... Uh, 2009, 2010, and um, I don't blame the physicians for this. Uh, no one could pinpoint what was wrong with me. At first, they thought I had MS, multiple sclerosis, uh, but that proved not to be true. And actually, what was happening was I had contracted a disease uh, called Guillain-Barre, and for those of your listeners who may not be familiar with it, uh, it was first isolated by Dr. Guillain and Dr. Barre of Paris, uh, who first isolated the disease uh, after uh, right around World War One. And uh, not a not a lot of people have it, although there's more transmission of it now with the Zika virus. Um, Guillain Barre, named after the two doctors, is the uh, erosion of the myelin sheath on your brainstem. And so you, the nerves react by not being able to perform the functions that they were, they were created for. A lot of pain, tremendous pain, and uh, nothing that worked. Uh, so I'm in the hospital, and they can't figure out what's wrong with me. 
many physicians never see this disease in their entire career, and so they they don't recognize it. Um, I had one doctor tell me it's a small footnote <laughs> in their studies, Guillain-Barre. Uh, so anyway, uh, one but they did bring in a consulting uh, neurologist who uh, had had one patient in his lifetime, and so they uh, they did a test that required. Um, um, taking fluid from my spine and uh, finding very elevated protein levels and, and immediately diagnosed it as Guillain-Barre. Uh, but you have a window of opportunity to stop it. And uh, they use plasmapheresis and uh, autoimmunoglobulin therapy. But by this time, two weeks, almost two weeks had passed, and I was really in the throes of, 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 um, of being quite ill. And this paralysis creeps up, and if it gets into your lungs, uh, you simply die. Uh, so they started intensive uh, uh, blood transfusions and uh, uh, to try and overcome, but it went into full-blown um, Guillain-Barre. But slowly but surely, and, you know, um, it, I started to get better. And you would have thought, having faced that, I might have taken the time to cast my eyes heavenward and said, God, I may not have believed, but thank you. Not me. Arrogance, as I said, is a terrible thing. And, uh, you know, uh, and I say this with all respect, uh, airline captains are somewhat guilty of arrogance. We don't come by it naturally, but when you spend your life delivering hundreds of thousands of people's safety to their destination, you you feel quite good about that and you have to be careful because that sometimes becomes arrogance and uh, you think about that for a moment you know you're uh, flying through severe weather at 30 35,000 feet and sitting behind you are a couple of hundred people uh, a couple of hundred SOBs just uh, wanting to get home to their family and it's my responsibility by the way SOB stands for souls on board. <laughs> so before any of you have a heart attack, uh, I want you to understand that's how the manifest uh, identifies you. Thanks for, thanks for keeping us in the family-friendly zone. <laughs> <laughs> well, some, some, there's, there's a practical reason, if I might deviate for a moment. Souls on board means lives. So in the event of a catastrophic crash, and you had 297 passengers, and you find 301 bodies, it means you had four coffins on board. So there's a practical reason for it. So uh, anyway, souls on board for those of you who almost had a heart attack. Um, and uh, so it was, uh, uh, you know, it, it you come by arrogance naturally. And so I'm laying there, and I got through it, um, went through a tremendous amount of physiotherapy, uh, learn to walk again, learn how to swallow, learn how to speak, um, uh, but was left with tremendous body pain all over. And I'm not talking inconvenient pain, uh, Randy and Sean. I'm talking pain that's all-consuming. And, and those of you who are listening, who are going through or have had experience with that level of pain, it eclipses everything else in your life. And when I got well enough to travel, I went to all the the, the best medical uh, treatments around the world to try to find uh, some sort of cure or relief. 
and there is and was nothing. Uh, as I said, there's so few few cases, relatively speaking, of Guillain-Barre, there's been very little research into it. But I tried with standard medications and so on did not work. Uh, a specialist did recommend that I try an experimental drug from England. And I got permission from the Canadian, or my doctors got special permission from the Canadian health authorities to import the, uh, the, the uh, therapeutic drug um, on a temporary basis to see if it would help. And you know something? It did. It did. And uh, it wasn't an immediate cure, but I could have at least three or four hours of, uh, of, of a day that were the pain had decreased by 75%. And, and that was a wonderful gift. Um, but I also discovered that if I took more than the prescription called for, that the pain relief was greater and it lasted longer. And here we enter the slippery slope of over-medicating oneself. And, but having spent three years in absolute uh, pain and isolation and having lost my ability to ride my horses, to fly a plane, uh, to do all the sports that I loved, um, to suddenly be able to get some semblance of that back uh, I grabbed at it, and unknown to my doctors and unknown to my wife, I, I began to take more of it. And because I was still traveling a lot, uh, I was able to get uh, prescriptions refilled easily. And so uh, that slippery slope of depending on medical um, uh, outcomes, um, prescription outcomes, uh, really can come back to bite you. And um, so fast forward to, um, to 2014, um, and as long as I kept the medication at a high level, I was functioning. Still in a lot of pain, but functioning. And uh, I realized that I had to divest myself of a number of my interests, and so I was in the process of selling off uh, companies and, uh, and land. And so on that evening in April, um, I had received a request uh, from a company uh, that was acting as my surveying company to go and look at a large purchase, a large, large tract of land I had that I was trying to sell uh, and to make sure that the markers were in the correct place. And I, so although I didn't drive much because of my medical condition, it was all on back roads. So I got in my truck and and uh, drove to that field, and it was late afternoon, early evening, um, in 2014 in April, uh, springtime, and I managed to get to the field. And when I drove into the field, um, I didn't plan it this way, but I I was facing the setting sun, and uh, I sat there and the tr turned the truck off and sat there trying to get up uh, the, uh, the strength to make my way around this large piece of property and check the markers. Um, and I remember thinking, boy, I don't know if I can do this. That's a long way around. And then I happened to, and, and I'd gotten into the habit of hiding medication so that my wife wouldn't see that I was overtaking it. 
and I moved some things in my glove compartment or the console of my truck, and I I saw uh, some of the medication, and there was a bottle of pop there, and I thought, well, a few more won't won't hurt. Famous last words, and so I I took them, and knowing full well that I had already taken far more that day than the prescription called for. And, uh, and I sat back in the truck seat waiting for that warm relief that, uh, that I had become accustomed to uh, of the pain being dulled for a few hours. But as I sat there, something different started to happen. And uh, I remember the feeling of intense heat in my lower uh, legs was so intense that I thought the truck must be on fire. And I looked down quickly and there was no fire. And this uh, raging uh, heat came rushing up my legs and then from my fingertips inboard toward my chest. And I tell people, you know, you know when you've done something catastrophic, and by catastrophic I mean life-ending. And suddenly it was as though as my lungs started to seize, it was as though I was in the cab of the truck was filling with water, and I kept raising my head to try to breathe, and I could not. And it was at that moment of realization that I I was dying. And remember... I said I wasn't agnostic, but I believe there are the old saying, there are no atheists in foxholes. There are no atheists dying in trucks either. And I remember raising my hand and it was shaking violently to the setting sun. And from somewhere, Randy, deep inside of me, a place that I had never been to, was this overwhelming feeling of not fair, not fair. I'd had engine failures. I'd had I'd landed in difficult situations. It wasn't fair. It was a feeling of remorse that I had lived what, what many by a standard that many would have thought the ultimate success and that I'd never thanked the creator if he existed. And so... I raised my shaking hand to the setting sun and I cried out the first of six words. The first three of six words. And the first three words that I cried out was, God, forgive me. Forgive me. Uh, and and it came, as I said, from a place inside of me I, I hadn't been to in a long, long time. And when I no sooner got the words out than I collapsed on the steering wheel and hit my head violently, and I was gone. Uh, the next thing I'm aware of is uh, tremendous pain on my forehead, and I sit back up, and I'm in the truck. And I'm looking out, and I know time has passed because the sun is now on the horizon as it sets. And uh, then the realization flooded through me that I have no pain. 
the pain is gone. I finally got it right. You have to take the whole bottle. And I slide out of the truck and I walk about 15 to 20 feet away and I feel incredible. It's as though I've taken off a heavy, wet overcoat and with it, the pain. And I, I've, I feel like I'm 16 again <laughs> and, and I'm just overwhelmed and overjoyed and i and i'm looking out at the setting sun i can hear the birds it's springtime i can smell the grass and i am just overwhelmed that the medication finally worked and then i turn and look toward my truck and i'm outraged outraged someone is in my truck <laughs> Not only that, he has the audacity to be sleeping on my steering wheel. <laughs> and so I turn to go over there and give him a good what for. Have you ever had a dream where you're trying to run from something and it's as though your feet <laughs> can't move? And I realized that as hard as I tried, my feet would only move an inch or two at a time. And, and, and I'm stunned. Why, why, you know, I feel so good. Why can't I just run over there and grab this guy? But I do make slow progress, and then I look up. And gentlemen, the realization that the man in the truck leaning over the steering wheel is no stranger. It is me. How can this be? I am here, and yet I'm there. How can this be? And of course, being a guy that could fix anything and in my arrogance, I immediately concocted a scheme that if I could just get over there and get back in my body, everything will be okay. And so I struggled to get over there. And I know it's me because my head is turned this way on the steering wheel and there's blood gushing from my mouth and nose. And I, I struggled to get closer to get back into my body, but suddenly I began to rise. Now, as a, as a pilot, I'm a good judge of altitude. And as I'm rising, I, I, I'm stunned because how can this be? And, and I look and now I'm, I'm drifting slowly backwards, but rising continuously. And I, I can look down and see the bed of my truck, see my toolbox, and, and, and I'm, I'm stunned. I rise a little higher, and then something made me look up instead of down because I could see the surrounding area. I could look through the back window of the truck. I could see my body sloped over the wheel. And then I turn and I look up. And there, right in front of me, is this golden circle. It's maybe 200 feet away. It's about 60 feet in diameter. And... It's, it's like a golden wedding ring. And then suddenly the center of it filled with a golden light. And I had the impression that it swung inwards and backwards like the door of an old fashioned safe. And immediately my body went into a reclining position of about 45 degrees. And I mean, unless you've lived under a rock in a cave. I think everyone has heard of the tunnel of light. 
but I never paid any attention to it. And suddenly I began to go forward toward this tunnel of light. And as I went through the, the ring, I could see what was an immense distance and all of it covered with cloud that was golden, but a distinct path through the center. And it seemed once I realized what this was, it was as though I had pushed the throttles on an L-1011 forward on, on v, uh, to achieve V1 on takeoff. And I felt this tremendous force of speed. And, and I went at tremendous speed into this tunnel of light, reclining backwards above 45 degrees. And to give you an idea of the speed, I could, see, I could feel the stars streaming by, see the stars streaming by. I mentioned that in Baltimore one night when I was speaking. There was a young guy in the front row, and he said, sounds, sounds like the opening of the Star Trek to me. <laughs> and that's a pretty good analogy. It was the stars streaming by. And I was terrified because I, being a technical person, always understanding why things were happening, wanting to learn. I was absolutely baffled. There was no rationale, no technical reason I could attach to this. And I'm, I'm, the other thing that I remember vividly was that when you're going fast, whether you're in your convertible or in a speedboat or on your motorbike, you hear the rush of the wind. Uh, you hear the noise of the air. Nothing. Complete silence. And yet the sensation of tremendous speed. And so, Jim, you just said you were in a kind of a place where you're kind of terrified and scared. Did you enter further into the light and immediately encounter Jesus or angels? Or was there a darkness that tried to pull you in first? I... I I suddenly became aware of a, a, a bright light at the end of the tunnel that was even lighter than the tunnel. And as I came toward it, I decelerated and came upright. And I find myself facing, I still don't know whether to call it a door or a portal. It's covered in mist. Um, but I do know I have no choice because the, I'm, I, I sense that the, the tunnel is closing behind me. And so I stepped through this mist-covered portal and gently, gingerly put one foot inside because I cannot see what I'm stepping onto and felt something firm. I brought my other foot in. I look down, the mist starts to clear and I'm stunned because I'm looking at the most perfect green grass I've ever seen. Each blade beautiful in its symmetry and its evenness. I now know what they mean by the grass is always greener on the other side. <laughs> They're talking about heaven. And, and then the mist clears in front of me. I look up, and to my right, there's this beautiful uh, mist lifting off this field, and the field is covered in flowers of, of so many colors and colors that I, can't, I have no name for. And, I mean, I've traveled on every 52 countries in the world. Uh, I've been in the, the most beautiful places, and nothing compared to this. And I'm stunned by the beauty of it and the rolling fields that seem to go on forever. And uh, this beautiful vault of uh, uh, a darker blue sky than, than we're used to here on Earth. But no sun. 
because as a pilot, I was trying to orient myself. And I thought if I could find the sun, I know in my southeast, southwest, no sun. Everything seemed to generate a light that created this, this fusion of color. And then I swung my vision to the left. And as I left that beautiful vista on the right, the, the grass went from green to brown to black to scorched. And I was really taken by looking for the technical reason. Why would there be this dichotomy between these two vistas? And that darkness continued to the left and into what seemed to be a crevasse. And I guess I'm just naturally inquisitive. I made a few tentative steps to the left to see what was beyond this chasm. And, and as I looked down, and it, it was as though the walls of this chasm were covered with a shiny black coal, anthracite. And as I looked down, uh, the first thing I saw was at the very pit of this, the bottom of this uh, abyss, was a, a, a fire, a red, red fire, uh, as though you would glimpse a campfire on a distant, on a dist in a distant valley. And, um, but I was caught by the difference. And not only that, there was a sense of, uh, of, of gloom, uh, a miasma, um, I've learned, um, a sense of dread. I, I think ever since we crawl out of caves, we've always feared the darkness. And so I started to turn away from this, but then something happened. The fire became greater at the bottom. And as I'm looking down, two things happened. The brightness of the fire increased, and I realized that down and looking sideways, it was as though a door had opened, a large door. And I could hear a sound for the first time. And the sound was the sound of two large doors being forced open on hinges that had not been oiled, and you could hear them screeching and and so on, and just rusty. And, and of course, that flooded more light, so I realized the light was coming from the side to the bottom. And then, to my utter amazement, something shuffled out of that doorway. The doorway was huge, and so was the creature that came out. And... I'm looking down on it, and it appeared to have a form, uh, large, round. It was on fire. Its body was on fire. Its head was squat on its shoulders, and it seemed to be searching around the bottom of this pit for something. And, and, I, and then suddenly it was as though it became aware of me, and it swiveled its head around and looked up at me. And, fellas, I can tell you something. The look of hatred that I saw in its glowing eyes, not just for me, but for all of mankind will stay with me forever. On top of that, there was a, an odor that came out of that pit, a sense uh, of, of decay, a sense of, of all things bad, as I said, a miasma. And, and I, I turned because I couldn't bear the, to look at it but just the second before I turned, it began to scramble up the sides of that pit. Now, for its size, it was large. It moved in amazing, with an amazing nimbleness. And it crawled very rapidly up the side of that pit. And I scrambled backwards, falling backwards on my 
on my elbows and it reared up out of the pit and I got and, and I was confronted by this creature body on fire uh, dripping saliva uh, and, and and the most horrendous face but the other thing was there was screaming and the screaming was coming not from not from its mouth the screaming appeared to be coming from within the body it was as though this creature randy had consumed souls and they were crying out for mercy and it it stepped out of the pit and lumbered toward me and to keep my sanity i scrambled to my feet and turn my back to it and remember I said there's six words I said the first three God forgive me and then I turned and I raised my I turned toward the beautiful light and I I raised both hands and this time I cried out the next three words three words that I had never prayed in my life God help me help me and instantly three points of light appeared in the in the in that beautiful cerulean blue sky converging toward me one was coming from about 90 degrees the other one from about 260 and the other one from about 310 and all converging into one at the same time this creature is behind me and then in addition to the screaming, I heard it speak my name. This creature knew me. It knew me. I, I wasn't that bad a person. I may not have gone to church, but I, I was not. I, what did I do to deserve this? All these thoughts were racing through my mind. And I gave to the poor if there was a tax receipt. But what did I do to deserve this? And it had a strange voice. It, it, it was in between a growl and a whisper. And I could hear it saying, Jim, Jim, we are here for you. We are here for you. Join us. Come to us. And I just, I, I honestly believe that had I turned at that moment, and looked into its face, I would have been snatched. But instead I concentrated on this beautiful light coming toward me. And the and all of a sudden the lights fuse together and I'm, I'm looking at this light traveling toward me and the light washed over me and at that point I turned to look back. And Randy, when that light struck that creature, it screeched and screamed in agony and scrambled backwards like a rat running for cover. Darkness and evil cannot live in the light of God. Hmm. It must not live in the light of God. And I turned back to look and, I mean, I might not have gone to church, but I knew what an angel was. And suddenly I'm looking at three magnificent beings coming toward me, very tall, very elegant, silver, long hair, um, beautiful golden light, which was 
as I learned later, a refraction of their golden wings that creates this, what we call a halo. It's, it's the light on their silver hair from their wings when their wings are extended. And I, I remember being astonished because the feeling of love and peace and safety that flooded over me when just mere seconds before I felt all this hatred and evil toward me was truly overwhelming. And so they came right up to me and the first one approached me. And of all the things that I will always remember about this incredible encounter were their eyes. Now imagine these creatures, these beautiful creatures, 10 feet tall, another one about 12 feet tall, and then the one coming behind dressed in warrior gear truly a guardian angel, um, about 15 feet tall. So th these are wonderful creatures. So the first one walks up to me and looks down at me. And the thing that I'll always remember, they're violet eyes, violet eyes. And, and then they, he spoke to me and his lips didn't move. Uh, it was, and it was more than telepathy. He was in my mind, and I was in his. And and I say he or him. look. They I don't want to use the word androgynous, but they looked like the best of all of us. They they had the gentleness of a female and the strength of a warrior, and 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 and, and just this incredible combination of everything that's good. And all of a sudden. I feel this wonderful arm come up and come around my shoulder and 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 then I'm conscious that this magnificent huge feathered wing came out around his arm and he pressed me into his into his chest and I looked up into those violet eyes and I hear this in my mind this beautiful voice that said to me fear not James for we are your constant friends. And now, as you gentlemen probably know, whenever you get an email or a text or a letter from me, I always sign it, your constant friend. And so there I am, cuddle up to something that I thought was just a myth, a legend. And I felt so safe and warm. And I, I have to tell you this, I know we're running late, but I have to tell you this, as I'm being hugged, I suddenly became aware of the incredible smell of warm tapioca. Now bear with me. And I'm not here to start the church of the holy tapioca. I'm not. But here's something you should know because you will all experience this. God knows what a huge difference this is for us to encounter him and his beings. And so he gives us something that we loved as a child to, uh, to, to make us feel we have come home. And when I was a young boy walking home through a snowstorm in northern Canada in the middle of June, <laughs> I'd get to my grandmother's house and I'd go in and on her wood stove, uh, she would have made warm tapioca for me. Isn't that wonderful? And for some of you, it may be the smell of your mom's perfume. It might be the smell of your dad's burn. It might be 
any of those things that brought you joy as a child. And for me, it was the smell of tapioca. So I don't mean to digress, Sean. But... I'll, I'll help you digress a little bit, Jim, <laughs> because for me, when I met my grandmother in heaven, it was uh, chocolate chip cookies. Really? Really? Yes. That was when I visited her home. That's what I uh, smelled. The first smell It was kind of a musty odor otherwise in the in the little bungalow. But those chocolate chip cookies. Yeah. And that was the uh, fragrance uh, in heaven. Yeah. You know, our, our viewers, Jim, um, have noted the uh, sometimes the variance in the stories. That is, each of us account something a little bit differently or some sometimes significantly differently than what others have mentioned. Um, but I know it doesn't bother you or me uh, in hearing that, the, these different accounts, because we can each... Uh, reach a destination, and along the way, uh, our account of our travels uh, to that destination, and even our expression of how that destination uh, looks and appears uh, to us is relevant very much to our own experiences, our personality, and all of those things. I, I just uh, think it reflects the glory of God to know us and what we need and your account in meeting the creature, um, I can identify to some extent, having seen a battle between uh, the angels and the demons as I was being pulled by that proverbial light. Um, I thank you for bringing us to the account where you had met the angels and the warmth of those angels and how they affected you, the three of them. But I've got to ask you this question, Jim because you are looking over at your horses there. And I recall reading your story. And by the way, our, our viewers and listeners have got to read Jim's book. It's, it's fantastic. Um, but one of the comments that you made uh, in, your, in your book, uh, when, when you um, woke up, you had mentioned to your wife, well, there are horses in heaven. Yeah. <laughs> You've got to get to the horses, Jim. Yeah. And okay. what you saw there. All right. I, I, I apologize. I am guilty, as I said at the beginning of the conversation, of, uh, of uh, trying to get as much into the story as I can because I'm afraid I'll leave something out that may help someone. So anyway, the, the guardians were, were, were wonderful. I felt safe. And then they, uh, they're very elegant. Uh, I do have to tell you this because I think people would be very interested in this. I, I was taken by how they bowed to me. They bowed to me. And, and I felt rather uncomfortable because uh, I should be bowing to them. And I, I questioned why, because it was such a, a bow of, of, um, of respect and subservience and bowed very low. And, uh, and they spoke with kind of this Victorian... Uh, perfection in their voice. I didn't hear any thou or thee, or, <laughs> but a very measured tone that incredibly, and with every word they spoke, there was wisdom. Anyway, I, 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 I questioned the guardian that I eventually found out was mine uh, all my life. Now that guy had pulled, uh, that person, that angel had pulled an awful tour of duty, but I digress. Um, but I asked why, and they said, James, do you not know that when we look at mankind, we see the spark of life of our master? 
Isn't that something? We who consider ourselves the lowest of the low are looked at by the angels in awe of us. Anyway, so we walk, and I'll, I'll skip forward, but they showed me many things, told me many things. I developed 360-degree omnivision, I call it. Uh, I heard everything. I understood everything. Uh, the beautiful flowers that spoke to me, that, that, that sang to me. But eventually we come to this beautiful pasture, and, and uh, I guess they knew my love of horses. And again, I think it ties into your, uh, to your comment on your, chocolate, your grandmother's chocolate chip cookies and my uh, love of tapioca, uh, and, and because they wanted to show me something that, that would really make me happy. And uh, the second guardian raised his hand and suddenly coming from around the grove of trees toward me. And as they ran, as they trotted across the grass, the grass lit up with the, with light from their hooves. And there were three of the most magnificent horses coming toward me. Now I had never studied the Bible. I had no idea at that time that when Jesus comes back, he'll be riding a white horse. It's in the Bible. And I'm stunned, you know, because as I stand there, they come right up to the fence and the, and I had loved their kind all my life. And they seemed to know that. And they looked at me with such love in their eyes. And I reached forward to stroke the neck of the lead horse. And my hands sank right into the body of this being of light. And when I pull it back, Randy, uh, the light of the horse's body stuck to my hand till I got it 10 to 12 inches behind, and then it came back into the horse's body. And, and it was just phenomenal to watch and to experience. And I've come to call it the sticky love of God. <laughs> That's something you hear every day. So, uh, yeah, so that was, that was the, the horses. And uh, so we went from there, uh, and I'll skip through to uh, a really important part. Uh, they were showing me more things and and i i suddenly was conscious of the of one of the guardians standing next to me and he said hold my cloak and so i reached over and, and held on and suddenly we were above looking down uh, and it i thought i was looking at a reflecting pool but it opened up and i realized I'm having an aerial tour of heaven. And I hate using that term because you hear people that talk about our experiences, Randy, and they call it heavenly tourism. You know, well, what, what a lack of faith that is to hear that term of derision. Um, I believe with all my heart, I know this is real. Um, I wasn't imagining it. I wasn't hallucinating. Um, and so I was able to look and, and, I didn't know at that time that I wasn't being allowed to stay. You have to remember that. And people say to me, did you see your family? No, uh, I did not. It was explained to me that later that um, I could not set foot in the heavenly city, but they would show me the heavenly city. Um, I didn't connect it with the fact that I wasn't staying. Um, so anyway, you know, to see the halls of knowledge, the halls of wisdom, how heaven is laid out and 
Yes, the streets are gold, but it's not the brassy gold that we come to think of on Earth. It's a different shimmer of gold. Um, it's not the Fort Knox kind of gold. Uh, so, saw many things, had and had the opportunity to, to ask many questions. The thing I do want to talk about, because this is a comfort to so many parents, there was one building that stood out among all the rest. And the buildings are made not of stone, uh, not of wood, but of a material that has a light in it. Now, that I don't want it to sound too Las Vegasy, but it was a gentle, welcoming light. But this particular building glowed with a light that had a warmth to it. And I asked what building that was, and I was stunned when they said, that is the nursery. And I responded, nursery in heaven. And they said, yes, James, this is where the souls of aborted children or children who die in their innocence from disease or come back here. And each soul is so precious to God that that they're cared for. They grow at a different rate because they're, they're not growing a physical body. So they grow at about three times the rate that we do, uh, uh, that a child does on earth. And, um, and this is where they, they take care and, and so on. Of, of the, the little souls that have been unwanted or have died. And I had no idea how this part of the story would have such an effect on women who have lost children or who have had to have an abortion at a time in their life when they had no other option. And it's been a blessing to explain to these parents that their child lives. Their child lives. And so, anyway, I getting right to the, the main event. After showing me much more, we came back to paradise the ground of paradise, which was outside the walls, I learned. And uh, I was looking once again at the horses, and I, tr uh, and I realized I hadn't seen my guardian for a while. So I turned to look for him, and I saw him, and he was about no more than maybe 40, 50 feet away on a small rise. And, uh, but when I looked, he was bent over, uh, almost in a kneeling position, and was holding up a, a book and facing him was a more magnificent figure than even the angels but I couldn't see the face you know and it was in profile to me do you know how you drive down a hot road on a warm summer day and, uh, and, and there's a shimmer on the pavement there was this kind of shimmer covering the features of this magnificent being that was but clearly he was reading what the guardian was holding up and I took note of the book that the guardian had taken out of his sleeve. And it was as thin as a cheap roadside diner menu. And suddenly the awareness came over me that what the guardian was holding was the book of my life. And instead of it being a, a book filled with good deeds and kindness, all I had to show for a life that I thought was the epitome of success was this tiny, tiny book, thin, 
you know, Charles Dickens wrote a wonderful line when he wrote, mankind should have been my business. And instead, it was all about the pursuit of wealth. And all I had to show for it, although I thought myself a kind person, all I had to show for it was this little thin book. I am determined, fellas, that to live my life now, that when I go back, if, if they permit me to go back, when they open the book of my life for this chapter, they're going to need three angels and a forklift to get it open. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I, so anyway, I'm, I'm watching, and, and this figure is leaning forward, clearly intent on the little bit that's written in there. And, and suddenly uh, the figure straightened up, and the angel put the fold of the book, put it in his sleeve, and disappeared. And then this magnificent figure turned toward me. And as he turned from profile to direct on, suddenly the shimmer, gradually the shimmer that had covered his features vanished. And I found myself face to face with none other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God, someone that I thought was just some old Jewish legend that, that, that people had made up to create whatever. And I'm looking at this figure and the magnificence of this figure, the, not just the, the look of intense love and concern for me, uh, but this golden light flowed out of him from all seemed to start at his head and flow down his body and it was light that behaved like slow moving water it it flowed off him and it flowed down that slope and i fell to my knees and tried to crawl toward him i had to get closer and it was as though i had finally come home that i had found what i had searched for all my life and and i started to crawl toward him and uh to, to get closer uh, and then his eyes looked into mine and when I looked into those eyes of gray and green and blue I was lost in the love of eternity this magnificent creature knew me too but this was a creature of love and forgiveness and desire to know me better and for a split second and randy you probably experienced this too although my intellect knew better it was as though when i my eyes met his it was as though i was the only one in creation the only one he had ever created he knew me that intimately and loved me that deeply and It was a it was a moment that I knew from that on that whatever happened to me, I was his forever. Forever. And but I just wanted to be around him. And I tried to crawl closer to him and 
two guardians appeared beside me and held me back. And I, I struggled free and continued to climb toward him. And suddenly he raised his right hand. And there was no mistaking what the gesture meant. He was still smiling in a gentle way. But this was a definite command to stop. And I remember the feeling inside of me of, of, of uh, not being allowed to come closer. And I, I was, I, I waited with, I don't know, bated breath, I guess, if I was breathing. But I was just completely enveloped in the love of his eyes. And then I, I, I guess I must have taken another step or two or crawled on my knees. And I heard uh, all of a sudden he raised his hand even higher. And Randy, when he raised his hand, his cloak fell back. And I saw the, the remains of the crucifixion. And then he looked intently at me and he began to speak to me. And people say to me, what did it sound like? How can I possibly, <laughs> I attempt to, but how can I possibly be accurate? But suddenly I heard his voice and with him, unlike the angels, which was more of a telepathy, uh, not telepathy, but a mind thing, Jesus' uh, face moved just as you or I would speaking to each other. And then I heard the voice of the Son of God. And it stunned me that he knew my name. He knew me. And he looked at me with the gentlest of smiles, hands still raised, meaning to not come forward. And he said to me, James, my son, this is not yet your time. Go back and tell your brothers and sisters of the wonders we have shown you. And his hand slowly came down and crossed over his left. And I was overwhelmed with the fact that he knew my name. But more than that, I was now coming to the realization that I wasn't being allowed to stay. And I began to plead. I began to beg. I, Please let me stay. This is what I've yearned for all my existence. I just want to be wherever you are. Please don't send me away. Please let me stay. And I remember saying this. Please let me stay. I won't be any trouble. Can you imagine saying that to the Son of God? I won't be any trouble. But I was desperate. And suddenly two guardians appeared beside me and lifted me from the ground and turned me around and were carrying me back down the path. And I wrenched my shoulder away to turn to beg one more time to allow me to stay. And Jesus was gone, but standing exactly in the place where he had stood was this magnificent warrior angel that I had that had greeted me. And all of a sudden he began to expand. He grew even taller than 15 feet and he put his wings out to their full magnificence. And they spread out and upward in, a, in this 
beautiful gold and he was surrounded with light and the message was clear that he was bearing the way forward for me. And suddenly I feel the angels hold me again. Everything goes dark and I'm in a, a black tunnel and I can hear water and it's cold and it's painful. And, and I'm, I feel like I'm descending at tremendous speed, but unlike the tunnel of light, there's no beauty. There's just darkness. And, and I'm, I'm going down this, this steep descent and suddenly I guess they tell me uh, that I scared the, the daylights out of the nurses because I had been, of course, triaged, and and they had told my wife that uh, there was no hope of me coming back, that there was no brain sign, no sign of dreaming, no sign of hallucinating, nothing. Uh, and brain sign, of course, is the measure of death, not heartbeat. They, of course, had triaged me, had me hooked up to everything. There was complete renal failure of all my organs. And the doctors had said to Lorraine that they would keep me until our children arrived to say goodbye. And then they would recommend that she pull the plug on the machinery that was flowing blood through my organs. And, uh, and suddenly I come upright and scared the daylights out of the nurse she told me, and uh, later, and uh, screaming around all the tubes because I was intubated. And uh, and uh, they ran and got my wife and said, Mrs. Woodford, come quickly, come quickly. And Lorraine's a nurse. She ran into the room, and she couldn't believe it. She said, I was, my eyes were as big as saucers. I was trying to orient from the beauty of heaven to, the, to lie, lying on a gurney. And she climbed up on the bed with me and started to cry and 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 they they were watching my blood pressure come back to normal all my organs start to operate again so eventually they pulled the tube out so i could speak clearly and my throat was terribly sore and raw and and i looked into my wife's pretty face and i said lorraine lorraine i saw jesus and Jesus has horses. <laughs> of all the things I could have said to her, Jesus has horses. And I'm back. Wow, there's so many directions we could go after, after everything you've shared. Um, uh, but I want to be conscious of, of our time because we are, are starting to get to the end of our time together today. Um, you know, in terms of what you understood is why you came back, what your mission, your calling was on this side of your heaven journey, what shifted for you? Uh, how was your, your mission different on this side of your experience? Just let me quickly tell you this. What the words that Jesus said to me, James. He knew my name, my son. He's the father of us all. This is not yet your time. That implies to me that if I live a good life, there will be a time when I'll go back. Go and tell, which I'm doing with you now, your brothers and sisters of the wonders we have shown. And that's what I try to do every day. And, uh, you know, I, and the cynics out there, when they see me, hawking a book the funds from this book go to help all the poor that we can find it's not a lot but we do what we can
you know, that's that's another thing that I think that has been noted by some of the listeners or viewers, you know, when um, and I, I too, Jim, have writ, authored a book. Um, they think, oh, well, you know, they're just taking advantage of the opportunity, really. And that kind of discounts the story in, in itself. In reality, um, many of the accounts that uh, we've heard really are those that uh, where the either the author has reluctantly entered into writing a book or has been compelled by this edict that they felt from the Lord saying, you need to share this story. But I don't know if I've run across a single one who is a born again, believing believer in Jesus Christ, who has profited through this process. I don't, I, well, there we go. Jim hasn't either, you know, <laughs> so it all goes back into the ministry. It all goes back to helping others. Well, you know, sadly, those- sadly, as we all know, there are, shall we say, people preaching that do it for money only. And so the rest of us are tired with that brush. Uh, I don't look for any of that. I don't want any of that, but we do want to help all we can. Yes. And your story, Jim, gives glory to Jesus Christ. And that's what I think is the determinant of what is a a testimony that the Lord wants to be shared publicly in forms like this versus others who may share it and kind of give that glory to them. They feel enlightened or something to that effect. Um, I know Jim and I share this. I actually actually have to say, Jim, to you, that when I hear you, and I've heard your story before, of course, read your book, that I have an affinity for what you went through. Um, And there may be um, a few others as well where I am just, I'm I'm with you in that experience. That is, I have uh, a Quinania relationship with what you've gone through. Um, even though our accounts are, are varied, there is that very uh, identifiable kind of feeling and gripping. I don't know if uh, viewers noticed I was <laughs> tearing up because when you went there, Jesus, I couldn't hold it in. Um, there's that to me testifies, personally testifies of uh, the reality and also um, the need to tell this story publicly and to give glory to the Lord of his reality and his truth and his love. Um, So Jim, I just have one final question for you. Um, You've shared very openly uh, in your account. Um, The question I have is, and you've touched on it before, but this experience in and of itself, why do you think that the Lord gave you this experience? Because not everybody does have this experience. Why do you think he gave it to you, especially you, and what have you done with it? Obviously, we've done a lot of good things with it, but what what's your kind of central message that you want to convey to uh, to others? You know that that's that's something I've often thought about. And why me? 
And in the first few times that I started to speak publicly about this, I said, I, I have no idea why God chose me. And there was an older pastor in the front pew of the church, and he stood up immediately and he said, Jim, why not you? Why not you? And he said, you will, you will live a life of uh, criticism, but none of that will matter because you are doing what God told you to do. Go and tell your brothers and sisters. And so that's, that's what, what drives me. And it was my friends at Destiny Publishing, who I met through my co-author, Tom Gardner, who convinced me really to do the book. Because I, too, had concerns about being perceived as someone who did this for, for, for money. And, uh, and sadly, as I said earlier, there are people that do it. But uh, it's, it's, I, I, so coming back to your original question, Randy, I really don't know, but I'm trying to do the best job I can for God. And when God, when Jesus asks you to do something, man, you get you get filled with a a feeling of power that you never felt before. So, I'm just doing what I was told. Well, and and I'll say for me in terms of Jim's story, a couple things that stand out as I try to think in my mind in contrast with what others have shared, uh, certainly. The horses in heaven, that, that's an element that's unique. We've had another guest talk about encountering her her dogs in heaven. And, and not everybody experiences animals in heaven, but that's certainly uh, something unique from Jim's story. And then for me, I just I love the interaction that he had with the angels. Not everybody has that depth or that much encou- experience encountering angels in heaven. And so that's something that really uh, just stood out to me from his story. Randy, I don't know if you want to comment anything uh, for you that really stands out from Jim's story? Yes, and that is the moment that Jim went in is the condition of his heart. And I mean spiritual, I'm talking about the soul, that he went into this experience with versus uh, some of the others uh, that we've listened to. For example, Jim uh, testified that he wasn't an agnostic but he wasn't, uh, you know, this person who, uh, you know, was praise the Lord, hallelujah all of the time. You know, he just wasn't, he wasn't that type of person. He was a successful person and the worldly success kind of reflected in what he thought would be a success in, in God's terms. So you take that account of somebody who um, is, is not, the, the faith is not as firm as it is certainly today. Versus um, somebody who goes into this experience, um, having known the Lord, served the Lord, served, you know, whether it be in church teaching or whether it be just, you know, uh, whatever it is in ministry. And that experience is a little bit different. But we have heard a number of accounts where people have experienced these kind of demonic elements. And one of the, some of the comments that we've received are, I don't want to see that. I don't want to go through that when I die. I don't want to, I want to go right straight to Jesus, right? I don't want to go through what, uh, what these other accounts have said, you know, I don't want to be at the effect of possibly being called into, uh, into hell. And um, the good news is, and, and something that struck me, Jim, with your account is that you knew to whom you had to cry out to uh, that that's when you're, heart compels you 
to testify of Jesus Christ and the need for him, he brought you immediately into his presence. And I think that uh, speaks encouragement to those um, who have lost loved ones and the thinking, you know, um, you know, they really didn't, you know, live the life and I don't know where they are today. You know, the Lord loves uh, his creation so much that he gives every opportunity for that person to know him and to receive him and to be with him forever and eternity in heaven. And, um, you know, there is that period of time between, as you, as you mentioned, Jim, the heart stops and the brain stops. It's a short period of time. You know, the longest studies have shown maybe up to six minutes, but no longer. Yours was uh, hours, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Well, that, 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 uh, pardon me for interrupting, but in, in the brief time we have left, the reason it says 11 hours, that was from the time, that that's based on the time that I was found and the time I resuscitated. In other words, the, the medical history. Uh, but I, time doesn't matter. You know, this time is different there. Uh, you know, it's uh, time does time exists, but it's different. And I don't know if I was 11 hours or 11 years or 11 seconds. All I know is that everything I needed to learn, well, everything they wanted me to learn, I learned. And, 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 you know, as, as I mentioned for the, for the, the cynics and the Facebook comments that are rude and unbelieving and so on. Um, that's nothing compared to the hundreds of thousands that have reached out to me and said, you helped me so much, you know. And and just two nights ago, I had a gentleman call me because my, 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 I'm easy to get and said, I want you to know I was prepared to end my life. And I saw you on the, uh, on, on, on a TV program as I was getting ready to go out the door to leap off a bridge. That is incredible. And I hope that they have recorded that uh, so that this time the book of my life, if I'm chosen to go back, will be worth the time for Jesus to read. Wow, that's a powerful testimony to certainly end on. Uh, Jim, we wanna make it easy for people to find you, to connect with you. Uh, Where do we discover you on the web? Uh, Jim Woodford Ministries, uh, Heaven and Unexpected Journey is available on Amazon. Um, and just call me. My phone number is on my website. And like we do with every episode, we'll put links uh, links to Jim's website, places you can connect with him on social media, and links to where you can pick up your very own copy of the new book as well. Uh we're, we're so honored that Jim came back a second time. We had a technical issue with our first recording and it went bye-bye. And so the, we uh, actually I, got to record this one again. So we're, we're glad was, Jim came back. Uh, Sean, I think that was satanic. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm not sure what was wrong with that first one, but uh, yeah. the, the, we did get the second one down. But um, they, they can't, he can't keep three Christian dudes down. <laughs> right. That's right. As soon as we're done with this episode, I'm like downloading this one, putting it in the vault. We'll keep it safe. Uh, we won't let this one uh, be taken away. But, but Jim, truly an honor. Thank you for sharing with us, pouring into our audience. We really appreciate it. Um, we, just like everybody else, is so touched and encouraged by your short story. Thanks for sharing it with us. Thank you. God bless you. Both. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, Jim.